My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Well, the first thing for me when I look at these type of deals is, well, actually, there's a number of um, criteria that we have look at and we've got this like checklist that we always check off before we actually even jump into taking it on and look at an opportunity or even go into any due diligence. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Sharp and in this episode, Selena Kilkarni jumps back into the driver's seat to ask me the big questions about my method of alternative investing. We take a tour through how I got started in the alternative space and I share some case studies and reveal the criteria I look for when I play the role of the bank, including the sweet spot and what makes it appealing to our appetite. As an open book, when it comes to anything and everything property related, I'm more than happy for listeners to take a peek behind the curtain of my alternative investment strategy. Kilkani leads us through an overview of how I participated in the alternative investing world before taking a deep dive with no holds barred. Tyrone has had a lot of exposure to a lot of different strategies and in recent years has become quite ingrained in the sort of the alternative investment strategy of lending, so becoming the bank. And, you know, lots of uh, investors have been participating in his deal. But I think where I would love to start today for those people who are maybe new to this is could you kind of give people an insight into what kinds of deals they are participating in when they when they sort of jump in on these deals? Maybe to frame it so people can understand, as Selena has said, uh, we're pretty much mostly in the lending space and typically we are dealing with sophisticated wholesale investors and then at the same time, the other side of the coin, which is on um, the borrower side, they're also sophisticated wholesale um, borrowers as well too. And typically, the kind of deals that we go into are usually some type of property opportunity that can actually have an add value option to it. So that could be in developments, that could be in commercial properties, uh, it could be even just uh, a re- residential, you know. So I guess that's kind of an overview or high level of the type of developments. I mean, throughout this episode, I'll definitely be happy to share some case studies and some examples of the type of deals that we've been going. But at a high level, what we try to look for is, is there some kind of value add opportunity so that way we can generate some additional increase in value for the property because that's ultimately where we can actually lend our funds to and then you know at the end of the day get a very good return for ourselves and also for our investors as well. 
I think one of the things that would definitely be on people's minds right now, particularly given the current environment, is, you know, what are your investing rules? So when you're looking at these deals and you're trying to um, establish whether something's a fit or not a fit, what are the rules that you have in your mind that are absolutely non-negotiable when you're evaluating deals? Well, the first thing for me when I look at these type of deals is, well, actually, there's a number of um, criteria that we have look at and we've got this like checklist that we always check off before we actually even jump into taking on and look at an opportunity or even go into any due diligence. Uh, the first things that we usually typically look at is firstly, which state it is in because ultimately, we are looking at a property location and we are looking at the property itself. So, we want to make sure that it is in a very desirable location. Uh, particularly it has to be for us within a metropolitan suburb of whichever state could be, New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, uh, Western Australia or South Australia. You know, any one of those states, we look at mainly, you know, pretty much within the metropolitan area. We haven't gone anywhere sort of regional because we see that there is a risk there because the demand of those type of properties are not usually very high. Um, but we are starting to see, you know, a lot of developers going out that way because they can do a lot of land subdivision. So that, that's a thing. But the main criteria for that one is metropolitan within a specific state. That's the first criteria. The second criteria we look at is we want to know if there is a DA approval application on it or if there is an uplift or add value opportunity to these type of deals. If there is, great. Then that's where we want to see, okay, how is this going to work and then you know, look into a little bit after that. That's the second criteria I usually look at. Third one is we want to check the sponsor. You know, are they able to service this type of loan? So we will be doing a very, very deep analysis into the sponsor and finding out who they are, um, what their track record is, do they have any strong background of past sites that they've done, past projects that we can see. That's um, definitely another one that we look at in terms of the deal. Um, the other thing is, is that we have this kind of what we call sweet spot for us and this is sort of an internal thing. We typically fund deals anywhere between about a mil anywhere up to about three mil. That's sort of our sweet spot and the reason why we say that is because that's just enough for us to be able to go, look, this development size is just enough. If we went anything above that and, and I know I can guarantee there's tons and tons of those deals that we, we can fund above five mil and so forth but they get a bit too large for our I guess appetite for our lenders and the reason behind that is because the project gets extremely large. So if we're looking at say funding a 5 mil, 10 mil plus projects above, um, the overall cost of a project like that would be anywhere in the excess of 50 to 100 mil and when you get the, to those kind of large scales, there's a lot more complexities involved. So that's the reason why we don't like to fund those type of projects at all um, and, and you know, I'm sure there's plenty of funders or, or lenders out there who can do that. <laughs> Excuse me. So that, that that is one of the other criteria that we look at as well too. Um, another thing is LVR, you know, we want to be able to go, okay, if we look at this particular property, is there enough equity or is the LVR relatively low? And for us, and this is just a general rule, we try to find where the property has at least a million dollars worth of equity in it minimum for us because if we don't have that kind of um, buffer in place, if we'd need to ever go into say for example, administration, liquidation or whatever, you know, insolvency we want to be able to recover any costs, the legal fees and also the interest that is owing, whether it be default interest and any sales and marketing costs that's involved. And those things chew up quite substantially and you know, having a million dollar worth of equity buffer in there is, is going to be sufficient enough to cover those kind of costs as well. So LVR for us is quite important. Um, we look at that. 
And then I guess ultimately at the end of the day, we, we got to assess the deal based on what the lender's appetite is, you know, whether or not it's going to be a monthly deal or a deal that's capitalized and paid at the end. So those are some of the criteria we go back to our lenders and discuss that with them in, in you know, a bit of detail and understand what they want as well too. So we pretty much here act as a facilitator to be able to provide as much information as we can get from the borrowers and then put that kind of deal together so that you know our lenders can or our investors can have a look in detail and make their own judgment and assessment for themselves. Yeah, it's really, really helpful. I think um, you know, one of the questions that that I have of anyone in the real estate space right now is how is the current environment making you adapt to those rules or like are you being more picky? Are there projects that you kind of just put a red line through and say, no, we're not going to touch that. So how are you quantifying and managing risk at the moment? That's an exceptionally good question. And the reason why we've looked at this a lot more detail because of the market changing, we've noticed some of the deals itself just doesn't stack up anymore. Maybe 12 months ago when we would have assessed it as an example back then, it may have been okay. And we would think, okay, this this is manageable. But because valuations at the moment that are coming back from the vendors that have been provided, um, they're coming back actually 5% lower than it was previously. And and they're already factoring that in as well. So they're being super, super conservative, which is great for us because, you know, there are some properties out there that we, and even myself, I feel is a little bit still overpriced. And when I do, say, for example, searches using our systems that we've got internal access to, to understand property data, historical records, sales data, et cetera, all those kind of things, we, we look at it and go, hmm, looks a little bit odd and looks a bit high. So based on those kind of valuations, we look at and we go, okay, well, I don't think the valuation is going to be right or whatever the, the borrower thinks because typically if it's their own property, the borrower thinks it's worth a lot more. So they, they will probably you know appreciate it and say it's a lot high value. But no, in, in all honesty, we have been cutting back and, and taking a little bit more of a conservative view on a lot of these assessments. Like the other day, for example, a developer who we've been working with for a while, you know, he came back to us with some really, really good sites. And when we did our assessment, I thought, oh, great, you know, these are fantastic sites. There's there's enough profit in it. But then when we actually did our full calculation, realized, hold on, the LVR sitting quite high. We couldn't, you know, I guess, factor that deal into our, our deal flow. And we had to basically, you know, I guess, decline it because it just didn't add up and make sense in terms of what the current market situation is. So we've really, really been stringent on that. Um, we make sure that any of the deals that we're looking at at this point in time has enough buffer to factor in, say, you know, the market may take six, 12 months to sell a property if we need to. We factor that in as well too. And we've got what we call default calculators and all these things that we do worst case scenarios on, which makes it really, really important because then it goes, gives us perspective to go, okay, if we did go through that scenario, which I've got experience through that, um, how long would it realistically take to get the money back to be able to pay out back all the investors? And we've got these in place to be able to factor these in. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, uh, yes, it has impacted us and we've made sure that right now our calculators and all, all the due diligence that we do factor all this in at this point in time. I think what a lot of people are really interested in understanding is the process that you would go through if a borrower were to kind of hit the skids in some way and you know, put themselves in a situation where maybe they did default on interest. Like in your mind, how much leeway do you give people before you kind of take a legal approach or, you know, do you, you know, in terms of your criteria for making sure they can make interest repayments, is that, 
you know, do you physically need to see cash set aside or do you just need to know that they have a certain income? Like what are you looking for? And then if you could describe in your mind if something were to go sideways, what your thinking of the process would look like? Maybe just to put it in context, when we do work with, say, for example, a borrower who is coming to get a loan from us, typically the way we look at it is we want to treat them as though it is like a business. You know, we want to see the assets and liabilities. So that includes, you know, profit and loss statements, balance sheets, um, pretty much a summary, you know, of their financial position at that point in time so we can understand. And if we can obviously get their tax returns that's been done recently or within the last couple of years, it would also help just to be able to substantiate and also back up with what they're saying. Because Sometimes they can put things in the in the calculations into the statements and it might not match up to what they've submitted to the ATO. You know, they discover that's you know from time to time. So not saying that everyone does that, but it, it's just sometimes that just doesn't make sense. But yeah, things like that we do check. And and that's the key thing is that if it's an operational business or ongoing concern that's on the property, then that's actually a positive because there's some form of cash flow that's coming in. If it's just an empty vacant block of land, then the other thing is we have to look at what the other businesses are doing as well too in terms of the development. So we do look at those things. We want to you know, find out firstly the asset side of things. What does the asset look like? Make sure that the valuations that they've provided stack up to the numbers that we've been provided. Obviously, they provide an estimate you know, initially at the beginning, but until we get a proper valuation that's been done, we can't obviously you know, rely on what they've told us because it could be way off to what the actual valuer says. So those are very, very important parts that we look at. We want to know as well, you know, what's the history of their um, payments because if they're already with an existing bank or they're with an existing private lender, we request for them to provide us bank statements. I'm actually going through a lot of detail in terms of the, the due diligence that we do, but this is kind of the stuff that we do. You know, we, we definitely check these things out because you want to look out for if they've made defaults you know, in the past with other lenders, if they've had any history with bankruptcy, all those kind of things will come up you know, once you start doing your due diligence. And that's the kind of level of detail we get to. Now, I could go on for hours talking about this because there's so much that we do in depth. Um, but I guess as a general overview, the thing that we want to look out for is one, as a sponsor, have they actually been paying you know, all the past bills or any expenses or any of those kind of things? on time you know and what's their really net worth at the end of the day if we actually had to go out and, and really sell all the assets back out how much do they have because typically they give us their personal guarantee so if they've given us the personal guarantee we would have all the access to whatever assets they have and um, we want to be able to get our money back at the end of the day so that's really what ultimately the big picture is is that that's what we want to do and as long as those criteria match with all the other stuff that we've got then we're comfortable with you know what we do and I know with banks, it's a bit different because banks typically assess on serviceability. Can they potentially service a loan that's over 30 years? These kind of loans that we're doing are short term, like six to 12 months. What we want to be able to see is the asset value. Can they actually service it for that short period of time? And then is there going to be an uplift? And if there is, then there's our clear exit strategy. So yeah, there's, there's a lot that I've just packed into that. Coming up after the break, we discuss typical entry and exit points. Because I think that in itself probably takes a lot of risk out of the equation for a lot of people. The key component for all parties involved. Really got to rely on, you know, the person who's putting the deal together, like yourself, to run the deal. We delve into the one thing I try to do in every deal to improve everybody's confidence. Tell me about what kinds of people you see as being a fit for working with you and which ones maybe not. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sharm and you're listening to Property Investory. 
Hey, property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Pivoting to a question I get asked frequently and for good reason, we turn our attention to how my criteria differs to that of a bank and why a borrower or deal sponsor would come to me over a traditional bank. Look, I think people who are switched on and smart investors are really interested in getting into the weeds. I think this is really useful information. I think um, you've sort of just touched on it, but my next question was really going to be around, you know, how does your criteria compare to a bank? And why would a borrower or a deal sponsor come to you versus a bank? Because obviously, uh, you're charging a significant premium on money compared to a bank. But why wouldn't they just go to a bank, a traditional bank? It's really ultimately at the end of the day's time. And, and if you know, um, I'm pretty sure you know from experience, Selena, going to the bank is a very rigorous, long process. It's not as simple as just say, hey, you know, Mr. Mr. Banker, I want to submit my tax returns to you. I want to give you my assets. Can you come back to me and let me know how much I can borrow? No, it's not as simple as that. Like Even I've been just dealing with a broker who I initiated or engaged about a month and a half ago and I still haven't even got a confirmation on you know what approval we can get from a loan. Um, and and that's, that's because they're waiting on other paperwork that I'm getting from my accountant which is delaying that process. Typically, that stuff just delays the whole thing and I know that a lot of these type of developers who I've worked with or commercial brokers, sorry, commercial borrowers I should say, I've worked with, they've all been trying to, I guess, move quicker because at the end of the day, if they're holding these properties that they've either purchased with DA approval on it, they just can't do anything until they get a loan because, you know, they get stuck and the longer they hold on to this, the higher the costs, you know, start to accumulate. So for them, it, it's more about timing. If they have to wait six months for, for example, a major bank to come back to them to provide them with all that information, because it could cost them as well additional time with going solicitors, lawyers, accountants, etc., to compile all this information together. Whereas coming to, I guess, through us as a private lending institution or lend, uh, private lenders, the the process is a lot clean and simple. You know, there's there's a lot of rigor that goes in, and as you know, there's a lot of red tape within banks. There's just all this credit checks and all that kind of stuff. Not saying that we don't do that, but we're a lot faster than that, so we don't have to spend so much time as they do in the banks. And especially when you've got thousands and thousands of applications going through to the bank, it's basically you just another person in the queue. Whereas with us, we're directly dealing with a lot of these developers who we've had strong relationships with, and because they've proven they've got a good track record. We can work with them, you know, on a personal basis, and then work things out pretty quickly. So that I think is is a pretty common question. Now, I guess at the end of the day, these developers know that they're not going to be here with us like a thirty-year loan, you know. Otherwise, it'll literally destroy their projects if they were with the rates that we charge, because it's so short term for them. They're in maybe six months, maximum twelve months. They can afford to wear that cost because it's only a small, small percentage compared to say the larger loan. You know, typically they've got probably a, a large loan with a, either a large first tier private lender or maybe a bank and that rate would probably be substantially lower and then they've only got this small percentage of this loan with us which is only going maybe for 3, 6, 12 months max and when you add that cost into the overall project, it might be an extra 1 or 2% for them 
and hence the reason why it's win-win for them because they get the funds much faster so they can actually proceed further with their project and not delay that because ultimately they just want to get finished and then paid you know and make a profit whereas for us we just want to come in and get out quickly too I know we talked about this right at the beginning uh, in terms of the sorts of projects and the scope of projects really becoming a lot wider. I think, um, you know, one of the concerns that a lot of people have is anything to do with ground up construction. Now, my understanding of your strategy, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're looking really to not have that exposure to the ground up construction type of thing. But can you just explain like where you're... Um, product kind of enters from a timeline point of view for most developers and then when you exit because I think that in itself probably takes a lot of risk out of the equation for a lot of people. So typically developers have a few stages in their pipe and I'm going to talk at a very high level so that way people can understand. Um, For a development project usually you've got one stage which is to purchase the land and then go through to, to a DA approval which is through council. That stage I guess you can say is very much determined by how long council is going to take and it's very unknown there's not a fixed time frame like some councils in say for example Sydney take 12 months to get approval other councils in Queensland might take only two months to do so it's dependent on where it is but there's no sort of fixed time and date and and that's the sort of risky part about it is that you can actually get the site but you might have to wait 12 months and if you know someone goes in and loans you that kind of amount you've got additional costs there you're, you're basically holding costs to be um, managing and keeping that project or that that site. We try to avoid going to those kind of things and we, we usually don't go. Normally, it's from the DA process. So if once they've got the DA approved, it's a DA to the construction loan process. That's where we come in. And that's typically what they call in the industry like a bridging loan because during that stage, they still have a lot of work to do. So even once they get the DA approved, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're ready to go on site and start building the next day. It's not as simple as that. There's still consultancy work that's involved. I mean, Selena, you know from this, from your own experience of doing development, still all that additional paperwork to be done. Then after that, you've got to get your building approval, et cetera. You know, building, building, um, getting your builder on board as well. So that takes time. And on top of that, if you haven't got your um, construction finance ready as well too, you've also got to go and get that. So that process can take typically anywhere between three, six months. Just depends on, on how fast you move. And that's where we come in to actually support that process is to provide that short-term loan to help them um yeah and um that's where i guess the beautiful thing about where we come in in that short period of time is because it's kind of fixed you know roughly it's going to be taking no more than six months because the exit strategy for that is that we're going to be paid out by the first tier lender through a construction loan as an example and that way um yeah the exit strategy is very very clear yeah that's terrific so i think you know just to clarify you're not trying to offer people construction finance. You're really just bridging the gap between, you know, the DA process and getting ready to go to site. So that certainly reduces the risk for a lot of people. I think the um, the, the last question that I'd love you to unpack a little bit is really a question around who these types of strategies are for and who are they not for? Because I know in my own um, journey, you know, you tell people about the sorts of double-digit returns that you can achieve in alternative and everyone wants a piece of it. Um, but, yeah, a- as a strategist, my feeling is that, you know, it's right time, right person, right place, right, you know, right everything. So could you talk from your perspective about who you see as being a fit for these types of lending deals and who's not a fit? 
it's a really, really good point that you've raised. And um, it's not, you know, I guess discriminating anyone. You know, at the end of the day, we're, we're here to try and help as many people as possible. But I think as part of what we have to do, um, being the stewards and facilitators, we also need to abide by certain rules, which is provided by ASIC. And one thing that we've um, been doing because we're also um, going through to get our AFSL license recently too, is that we, we actually have been asked by our legal team to actually... Um, only accept applicants from who are wholesale investors or sophisticated investors, which is typically you know what what most um, these deals target at. So if you look on the ASIC website and find out what a sophisticated investor is, it's typically two hundred fifty thousand dollars of income earned in the last two years, um, and and obviously it's got to support and sustained by an accountant who's got to write a letter for you, or you've got um, a little bit over I think it's two point or two million dollars worth of assets or something like that. So that definition is pretty much the first criteria in order to be able to be accepted into becoming or receiving these type of deals. So as a wholesale investor, um, you get access to opportunities like this. And this is quite common across, not just in Australia, but across the world. You know, um, if you read Rich Dad Poor Dad, the reason why a lot of the, the successful, rich, wealthy people get access to the best deals is because they've proven that they can actually manage money because this is not for you know, what they call a retail investor or someone who's just starting out. Um, there are inherent risks and I will say that there are inherent risks that um, you've got to expect and if you've never done an investment or purchased property or done any type of dealings with investment before and knowing the risks about it, then this is ideally not going to be the best option for you because, you know, once you invest this kind of, um, I guess, capital into this, you will have to expect that there may be delays. There are going to be some um, things that happen, you know, typically, yeah, we try to get everything all back on time, but you know, with how I guess with the kind of moving parts and so many things happening, you can't always guarantee. And there's no guarantees in this type of game. But the good thing is that when we actually structure these type of deals, it's protecting our lenders, but also protecting and getting insured that we get as much security as possible. So that way, you don't lose, you know, whatever you've put in there. Not saying that you're going to guarantee to get all your money back all the time. I mean, ideally, that's what we want. But I think what I'm just trying to say is that we protect, you know, as much as possible by getting guarantees from the um, borrowers and security. So, yeah, that's the first thing is wholesale investors is the key point. Second thing is, I guess, minimum capital. Um, yeah, looking at at least half a million dollars worth of capital that you can uh, invest into these type of deals. And I guess the, the thing is, is this kind of investment opportunity or these type of um, deals that you'll be receiving is that the money that you'd be putting into it can't be stuff that you got to be using on the day-to-day living. You know, that's the question that I will ask when we have a, a face-to-face interview because at the end of the day, as I said, if you need this money to be reliant to be able to live off, then it's not going to be for you because this is more of an investment, you know, ultimately. And it's the same thing. If you're going to buy a property, you're not going to be looking to buy the property and then sell it in six months. You're going to be looking at, you know, buying the property, holding it, you know, for a long term. And obviously, you can't just go to the bank and sell it instantly the next day because it's going to take some time. By the time you do go through all the costs, the timeframes, it's going to be at least two or three months before you can sell. And this is the same thing. You know, sometimes you just got to leave it in there until it matures and then that's when you get your return back. So typically, that's that's what we, we would say initially up front. Um, yes, the returns are fantastic and phenomenal and we do provide updates to all our lenders and, and ensure that they're always kept up to date what's going on. But yes, there are going to be some times where there's delays. You know, that's just part of running any project. Sometimes there may be um, 
you know, I guess things that may just change in the market and that's where we'd have to restructure certain things. Especially in a condition like this, volatility is, is becoming higher and we just need to make sure that um, we protect everything that we do and we ensure that there's always mechanisms for us to have uh, clear and safe exit strategies as well for all our lenders. I think it's a really important point that you've made, which is when you participate in an alternative investment as a passive investor, you just need to understand that your ability to control the deal and your ability to exit is, you know, is secondary. You've really got to rely on you know, the person who's putting the deal together, like yourself, to run the deal and, you know, trust that you've made, you know, the right judgment, but you can't just pull out midstream. And I think that's a that's true across all of the alternative strategies is, you know, these are these are big assets, there's commitments made and you can't just exit. So it's it's a it's a very different mindset to where, for example, you buy a, a share or a piece of property that you control and that you can decide to sell at any particular point. That's exactly right. And, and I think the other thing I just want to mention is that people understandably in this volatile market are looking for liquidity. So, you know, I've had many lenders come up to me and say, can we, you know, exit because they just want to hold the cash. But that I think is because of understanding emotional side of things is that some people just get fearful and we can't let fear, you know, block us from still taking action at the end of the day. But you've just got to make some clear decisions because ultimately, if the return is fixed and you can see that there's you know, a certain time frame, like you're not locked in for five years or anything like that, you've got like six months or 12 months, then it's only really short term. And I think the thing is, is just to understand that once these have already matured, then you could obviously you know, either keep that cash and just wait to see what happens. But ultimately, you know, what we try to do for the best is to make sure that the investors get a very, very good return at the end of the day. And, and hence the reason why I continue for myself, you know, because I, I talk, I walk my talk, you know, because I have invested quite a lot of my money into all of these deals and the returns are phenomenal but I know that there are going to be some delays you know and I don't need this money at this point in time and that's why I go okay just let it compound do its thing and it's very passive it's as passive as I can get it you know so that's the whole reason why we've done this is because you just want your investments to work hard for you not you having to be actively involved in those investments. These have been some really great insights for people who are interested in being involved in this type of deal and this particular strategy. Um, I think that the the final question that I have for you, Tyrone, is really around, you know, you haven't really mentioned it, but I know like one of my criteria is to always work with people I genuinely know, like and trust. Um, tell me about what kinds of people you see as being a fit for working with you and which ones maybe not. It's kind of an extension of the previous question. It's a really, really good question. And and this is one of my criteria because I'm a bit old school. Um, I prefer to meet people who I am going to be working with. Um, typically, as much as I can, you know, as long as I can get to where they are, we would actually go and meet the actual borrower or developer, whoever you want to call it. And um, pretty much every one of the developers that we've worked with, we've met either via Zoom or, you know, I've, I've actually gone out and met them on site. And it gives, them, gives us a bit of confidence, especially myself, to know, okay, if I've met this person, I can kind of read who they are. I can genuinely see what they're going to show me because typically, you don't just go and meet them. They'll actually show you the site. They'll show you, you know, what the operations look like, their businesses and stuff. And most recent one that I just went out to meet with um, another very successful borrower as well, a successful developer, he actually went through and spent pretty much a few hours with us to show us step by step, you know, here's our team. This is what we do. 
have a look at our operations here. He took us behind the scenes, literally, you know, and that gave me so much confidence going, okay, he's not just talking about it. It's not just on paper, but I can actually see what is going on. And then, you know, next week, I'm going to go and visit his site again to see another site to see what's happening there. And that kind of gives me very, very good assurance because ultimately, these are long-term, you know, clients that we're going to work with, even though they're coming for short-term, but they're constantly doing new projects all the time. So, you know, if I have a strong relationship with them and they like working with us, then, you know, it's a win-win situation for everyone. Thank you to Selena Kilkani for interviewing me on this special episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.